We are I. Good morning, Caleb. So we kind of got a little bit later of a certain hour difference here. And again, apologize for being in the gym. But I guess in this set and setting and what we're going to talk about today, um, probably no better place to be able to do it considering we're probably going to talk about everything, biohacking, health, um, from A to Z, mind, uh, all the way down to the toes and stuff. So welcome. Thank you for coming on to chat this morning. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Maybe give me like a little bit of a, a background. Obviously, I know absolutely nothing about you, which is the way that I like going into conversations with people because then it has my intrigue just buzzing. But uh, I always start with everybody. Kayla was born and then you were here. Try to fill in some gaps for us so we get to know who you are. Absolutely. So, yes, I was born in Ohio and I'm now based in New York. So, um, I uh, studied my undergraduate in human science and nutrition. So I've always had a big interest and passion for the body and health, fitness, things like that. But I think like most practitioners, um, you know, I struggled with a lot of my own health issues early on. I was an entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was 17. Mind you, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was doing something. Um, and, you know, it brought on a lot of stress. So I found myself having a, a variety of different ailments from breaking out in hives to eventually a little later hitting some, you know, cognitive issues. I was on ADHD medication for about 10 years. I knew it was something that I wanted to go off of. So like many of us, you know, I really had my own health struggles and in Western medicine, I was finding that, that there was always some sort of band-aid just prescribed. So, oh, you, you're having hives. And I was bringing up that I thought it might be stress related. And they said, well, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to give you a steroid cream and you can move on. And at that point, I knew that it was really important to take my health into my own hands. So not only did I have a background in nutrition and had a big interest, but I hired a group of functional medicine practitioners. So I hired an ND, a nutritionist, dietitian to really look at what was going on and dive in deep because I knew that there had to be a better option than just taking medications for the rest of my life or using creams, things like that. So I really dived super deep. And then a few years later, um, I really had a major interest in the brain. So, and the reason why is, you know, I have some mental health illnesses that run in my family. That's one thing. And then also these cognitive kind of walls that I was hitting. So I was having brain fog. I was having, um, you know, kind of busy brain in different points of the day. So I wanted to figure out a solution for myself. So I began to train under whom is now considered one of the most renowned brain doctors in the world. Dr. Daniel Amen, and he's absolutely wonderful. Um, he's really changing the world of psychiatry and bringing it from a simple um, verbal test to really looking at the brain to understand what's going on and then create a uh, plan of care. So I trained under Dr. Daniel Amen. I became a certified brain health coach. That was about five years ago. And now I operate um, and own a private practice in which we work with clients to upgrade their health, cognition, the whole nine yards. So we look at everything from individual biomarkers because I'm a very big fan of individualized functional medicine. So we look at, you know, things like gut health, thyroid health, telomeres, hormones, uh, food sensitivities, all of these different pieces of the puzzle 
to really develop and create a personalized plan for lifestyle, nutrition, supplements, and even uh, biohacking therapies that the client might need. So that's kind of my background and story. I absolutely love um, not only working with our clients in-house, but also uh, spreading awareness on Instagram, which has been a lot of fun because we can make these practices a little bit more widely available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there's, there's so much to, um, to dive into there, you know, but like maybe like define like what your, when you say brain health or, you know, like when you're improving somebody from like, cause nobody talks about improving like brain health or labels it like that, you know, like we all know things, you know, they feel a bit tired, you know, um, like feel a little bit cloudy, you know, scattered brain, you know, million different thoughts that we know all this, but there's no real brain health practitioners out there. So like, like what's the difference or like, what's your angle? What's the certification process? Like kind of fills in on that whole, cause it's, it seems like a relatively new field of study or like a field that people would be even be choosing when they look at being able to improve their health in general. Absolutely. Certainly brain health is something that's really just coming to the forefront, which I'm very excited about because if you think about it, our brain is involved in everything that we do, um, our relationships, how successful we are in life, how we really, you know, decisions that we make on an everyday basis. But we, we think a lot about the body. How can we look better? How can we lose weight? How can we lower our cholesterol? But our brain is so incredibly important. Also, when we get into later stages of life, things like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, these are really, really common diseases at this point, cognitive ailments. And so for me, brain health is, is not only improving your cognition so that, you know, the second that you wake up in the morning, your brain is firing the way that you want it to be. You have the energy and the mental stamina to achieve everything you want every day but also looking at the actual health of your brain. How is your blood flow? Um, Are all of the areas of your brain from the prefrontal cortex to the hippocampus to the amygdala, are they functioning the way that they're supposed to be? And we can see that on spec scans and different brain imaging. So it's really a combination. If you, if you heal the brain and so many people have either, you know, minor concussions that they don't really think twice about, or they maybe played contact sports when they were younger or in college or in high school, Um, they might be really, really lacking in sleep, which is very detrimental to blood flow in the brain. And they might not be putting their lifestyle pieces together to think about, okay, I'm tired, but what is this doing to my brain? Or what is my diet doing to my brain? In my opinion, it's just extremely important that we think about the brain just as much as we do with the body. Do you think that, because like I get into this conversation with people all the time about how, like, I don't know if we are physically adapted to be able to handle in the world we live in today. I don't know if we are emotionally adapted to be able to live in the world today. Do you think our brain can function properly in the world we live in today because of the fact that things like environment, diet, nutrition, exercise, um, you know, overstimulation, emotional stimulation, like all these things affect our brain and our brain health. And we know they're like almost all those categories. We have an overwhelming amount of toxicity for our body in all these different categories. Can our brain be successful in the world that we live in today without like, you know, going out of your way to be able to do all these things to be able to improve brain health? So to be honest with you, if you're living, you know, a very standard American lifestyle, and I say that based on the standard American diet, or as some say, the sad diet, no, our brains are not meant to live that way the current conditions of not going outside very often, not exercising, living a sedentary life, 
staying on social media all the time, being chained to our desk. That's not what we were meant for. So if you're living a lifestyle where you're consuming highly processed foods and you're not exercising and not doing a lot of the things that we're going to talk about in this podcast, your brain is not going to function optimally, optimally, especially not for the entire duration of your life. So I think that it's really important that people take these different lifestyle interventions and even bringing it back to, um, ancestral wisdom. How did people, how did our ancestors live? Because there's so much that we can take from that. There are so many healthy behaviors that our brain really loved. And that's kind of, you know, where we were, we started from. So we need to go back to that a little bit. Um, and, you know, utilize the new modern science that we have available, things like wearables and data and tracking and biohacking devices. So I really like to combine the two of them um, because the answer is just simply no. If, if you're living a very standard American lifestyle, your brain is not going to benefit in the long run. Mm-hmm. So let, let's kind of break those things down like individually. And because to me, I think one of the worst things that we do as human beings is have this singular life where we sit at this desk and like, this is your nine to five job because there's, there's no challenge to the mind, the body emotions. Like you basically get up, you know, the typical person will sit in a car for an hour, be faced with the same challenges. You go to work, you sit there for eight, nine, 10 hours and you're faced with relatively the same challenges. Then you get back in your car and you drive for another hour and you're faced with the same challenges. And there's nothing really outside of that. And I don't think from what I know about me and what I see in other people, that is the start of something that is the most unhealthy for us, you know, whether it be mentally, emotionally, or, you know, like for our brain health. Now, what do you know about just being in a very mono environment when it comes to challenges of the brain? Is that really unhealthy for our brain? Because like, like you say, with our ancestors, like they were used to conquering a multitude of different challenges every single day which presumably that would be very good for brain health, brain stability, mental stability, mental health, physical stability, physical health. Um, what's your perspective on that? Absolutely. And I talk a lot about this kind of, um, you know, on my Instagram, but our current lifestyle, I mean, there's so many negatives about the office. And of course, I mean, I completely respect anyone that has that lifestyle and chooses that path, but from the lighting to the sedentary time to, um, yeah, monotony in the daily schedule, it's really important to keep our brains young and agile to continue learning. So if you are in that setting, it's really best to try to do everything that you can to adapt your environment. And I think a lot of people are also working from home or having a hybrid schedule. So, you know, there can be some benefits to that because maybe you get a walking desk at home, you know, make sure that your lighting is not what, you know, Dave Asprey would call junk lighting all day. Make sure that your environment is a little bit more conducive to overall health. Also the toxins, there could be mold in the building. There's so many factors that are out of your control when you're kind of leaving your personal environment to go into a work setting, which of course, though, is very necessary for many people. So just trying to incorporate other behaviors like continual learning, maybe a podcast on the way there and back, maybe on your lunch break, you're going out, you're walking, um, getting sunlight, things like that, because it is not really how we were meant to live, but it is, you know, a standard situation in our current environment. So I always encourage people to just do what they can to make small changes to improve their environment at home, at work. And if you can really uh, create 
basically a zero toxin environment. Same thing with EMFs too. Well, I'm sure we'll touch on that deeper, but EMFs are all over. And if you're in a room filled with, you know, 50, hundred computers, it's, it can be really, you know, dangerous over time. Um, same thing. If you're using a cell phone all day to make your uh, sales calls or work calls, it's really important to do small things like use corded headphones versus putting the phone directly to your head because studies have shown that even uh, 17 minutes of cell phone use directly to the head per day over 10 years increases your risk of brain cancer by 60%. So it's really important to make a checklist of things that you can change to improve your work environment if that's the situation that you're in currently. Now, do you ever find it overwhelming when you're talking, or not you, do you find people get overwhelmed when we talk about these things? Like, how bad the food is these days, how bad our lifestyles are, like how bad our personal lives are, how bad our work lifestyles are. Like, like we really over the course of about 40, 50 years, which is just kind of like a generation went from not that bad to like completely horrible in almost all categories that we're in. But people still think because you happen to be able to wake up and stand on your two feet that nothing's wrong. But once you start to kind of dive deep into all this different subject matter, you're like, you're like, wow, like every way we live our lives is so counterproductive to health and wellness that it's, it's so overwhelming for most people. Do you, do you get that same thing there that people are just like, how can I be living every single aspect of my life air quotes wrong? Absolutely. Yes. Um, And I always encourage people to start small and have a list. So if we just throw at them, you have to change your diet, you have to change your water filter, you have to change your shower water filter, you have to use red light therapy and PMF and biohacking devices and cold therapy, it can be very overwhelming. So I like to equip, um, you know, everyone that we work with and as much as I can online with the checklist of things that need to change and then implement one to two small behavior changes every week. So you're not overwhelmed because there is a very, very lengthy list of things that need to be changed. And so many things people don't even think about, like toxins in your home and your air quality and the shower one people are always really surprised by. But if you think about it, your skin is your largest organ. So if you're showering in unfiltered water, then all of the chemicals, PCBs, pharmaceuticals, everything that's in our water supply is going directly into your skin. So there's definitely a lengthy list, but I think if people write it all down or have a checklist and then can kind of attack them one by one or or two at a time, then it becomes a lot more um, feasible for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, this actually, I I've talked a lot about this with um, other people too. It's like, because like a part of like the things that I do in my day is like I sit in a hot tub, but the part that drives me nuts is because there's um, it's either chlorine or bromine or the hot tub that I regularly or hot tubs that I regularly sit in. And I can't stand how like when I come out feeling that I've just absorbed all of this chlorine water, bromine water through my skin and how that's actually affecting my body. Because people don't think about that, you know, like it's not something that we forwardly think about is how and what's being you know absorbed into our body through our skin and how that's affecting us like is there some things that you know that you know are really bad you know that we're doing besides just having a shower like how bad are hot tubs how bad are pools you know like do we have any of that data 
Well, absolutely. I mean, chlorine is certainly something to be aware of. And I believe that, you know, you can do something with salt and as a natural cleansing agent for hot tubs, same thing with pools. If you're going to have a pool, try to do a salt water pool because, you know, salt can be cleansing on its own, but also when we even look at beauty products and lotions, it's unbelievable, you know, fragrances, um, the ingredient list doesn't even need to be disclosed because it's, uh, you know, a trade secret for the company, but they can pretty much put anything into these different products. So there's an app that I like that makes it really easy. It's called think, think dirty. Have you ever used it? No, I haven't. What's it all about? Yeah. It's, it's a great resource. So you can actually scan the barcode of pretty much any product, um, cleaning supplies, beauty supplies, and it'll give you a scale. So you always want to choose something in the green. And that can be, I always recommend zero to one in terms of toxicity, but all the standard products, you know, from, um, from Jergens and Johnson and Johnson, all these different things. If you scan the product, you're going to see that it's, it's highly toxic. So you want to download that app and then just scan everything that you're putting onto your skin, every cleaning product that you're using in your home. And that's immediately going to reduce a lot of the toxic burden inside your home by just choosing things with a zero to one score. What's it called again? It's called think dirty. Think dirty. Wow. Yeah. Like what a, what a great app to be able to do something so simple, you know, cause I'm sure it's one of those things that like, once you kind of troubleshoot that a few times, you have a pretty good understanding of like, you know, like what has the higher toxin values and what doesn't. So it's not even something you'd regularly need to use unless if you decided to try a different product or you go somewhere else to go shopping. Absolutely. And you'll also become more familiar with what ingredients to avoid. So, I mean, in terms of food, there's so many ingredients to avoid, but same thing with beauty products. So after you scan it a few times, because, you know, there's a big push for this healthy marketing, right? So it can have many different labels on it that would be seemingly health supporting for either your body or the foods that you're consuming, but you have to become really aware of what the ingredients actually mean. So once you do that with your products, once you really dive deep into what's in your food, I always say, try to just choose food without an ingredient label. I mean, that's really the best, but if you, if you have to choose ingredient level uh, labels, then you really should just be aware of what you're putting in your body. Because again, the marketing, there's so much flexibility in what people and different companies are allowed to say um, that has really brought a lot of confusion on to people because they're not looking at the labels. So I guess this kind of like is a good segue in, into nutrition, you know, because obviously like a lot of people think simply because I eat something and I feel full that this is great. Um, like, like where are you in this, in this spectrum with like how the average person eats and like, we're not talking somebody who's focused on nutrition at all, but somebody who's just simply eating standard American diet, standard Canadian diet, like how bad is that for not only our bodies, but specifically our brain? Yeah. So, you know, our bodies are literally, I know it's so cliche, but you are what you eat and, um, food is so much more than just calories. It's information for yourself. And the same thing with your brain, you know, do you want a brain made up of, you know, maybe wild caught salmon, or do you want a brain made up of Doritos? I mean, how do you think that your brain is going to function if you're filling it with highly processed, refined sugars, all of these different additives that we have in our food today? So our brain runs off the fuel that we feed it. So if you want to have optimal cognition, if you want to have the healthiest brain that you can, it's really important to consume what I always call a brain healthy diet. So there are some really important staples 
that we can talk about, but literally whatever you're consuming is exactly how you're going to operate, how you're going to feel, how you're going to perform. So unfortunately, if you eat like junk, which is basically our standard American diet, you're going to feel like junk and you're going to perform like junk. So it's super important to prioritize these nourishing, healthy, whole foods, free from pesticides, you know, glyphosate is, is such a huge issue. Um, it's able to be sprayed on all of our food and it's a known carcinogen. And essentially these companies will um, introduce something into the market like Roundup, and then they use it and get away with it for as long as they can, causing many health issues um, throughout the duration of the product use. And then as we see, so many lawsuits being brought to, to light. And then eventually they have to phase the product out, but they've made a ton of money in the meantime. And then they they've really hurt people's health also. So that's why it's so important that we have to take our health into our own control and we have to look at what's good, what's bad. And then we make those decisions and move forward. What are some of those nutrients that you were talking about that are like really beneficial for brain health in, in the food that we eat? Some of the kind of maybe the non-negotiables for you, something that you feel everybody should be consuming um, on a regular basis. Definitely. So the brain is made, it's mostly fat and water. So it's really important that we get a lot of healthy fats in. So organic avocado, ghee, um, extra virgin olive oil. Those are really, really great staples. Walnuts, you know, walnuts are shaped like the brain. So it's easy to kind of know that they're super beneficial to the brain, but the, the hard, hard rule is no pesticides, nothing refined, choose organic if you can, and your meat quality is super important. So grass fed, grass finished, how the animals were treated, where they came from, that's all going to affect your health. So it's important to do your research on that as well, but definitely healthy fats. Um, Omega-3s, which is found in wild-caught fatty fish like salmon is really important. I recommend that two to three times a week. Um, If you're not going to get that, it's important to take a supplement of fish oil, which includes EPA and DHEA. Um, Protein is also important for the body. So getting an adequate amount of protein, whether or not you do that through beans um, from a vegetarian standpoint, or you do it through, I prefer grass-fed, grass-finished meats. Um, super important and also smart carbs. So the brain actually runs off glucose. If you're in a, um, carb deficit and you're on a keto diet, your body can make sugar through a process called, um, glucogenesis, but it's important also to have days where you're consuming carbs and smart carbs. When I say that, I mean, slower digesting carbs that are going to keep your blood sugar stable for longer and not have a massive spike. So you most certainly don't want to grab something off the shelf that's high in carbs, but also highly refined. So we want to have things like sweet potato, barley, millet, these slower digesting carbs are really beneficial to the brain. So we have the wild caught fish, protein, um, low glycemic berries, blueberries are a super food for the brain. So low glycemic, of course, is going to um, cause less blood sugar spikes throughout the day. And we now know that for optimal longevity for a longer health span, um, we want to keep our blood sugar levels as stable as we can through the day. Also when the brain, if you, you spike, if you have a very heavy, highly processed meal, it's going to spike the blood glucose, and then it's going to immediately crash. 
So your brain, you're going to go up and then you're going to go down. So if you want optimal productivity and focus, you want to really keep it stable. So low GI berries would be um, mostly the darker berries. So blueberries, blackberries, um, raspberries are good too. And I'm not saying that fruit is bad in any, any, any sense. Um, I just try to prioritize the smaller, darker berries, wild, organic, of course, um, than the maybe some more highly fructose, that sh- uh, sorry, fruits such as watermelon, pineapple, those are okay in moderation, but the the dark berries are really what we're looking for. Dark chocolate. This is always a really good one. So you want to choose at least 70% cacao or more because you're really after the cacao. Um, It's super nutrient dense, loaded with antioxidants and polyphenols for your brain. So I have two pieces of that a day. And there's actually been studies to back um, that people that consume two pieces of dark chocolate a day, they have a better mood um, and less risk of depression. So those are pretty much the superfoods. Um, Oils are so important too. So we definitely want to eliminate all what I would deem toxic oils or also seed oils for canola, corn, soybean, sunflower, safflower, all these oils. Um, I just shared a post that, that actually illustrated that soybean oil, which is the most widely consumed oil in the US, it actually causes physical changes within the brain that actually lead can lead to much higher um, risk of Alzheimer's, dementia, and a lot of mood and cognitive impairment. So these oils are everywhere. They're in packaged goods, they're in restaurants, they're in fast food places. So it's really important to choose quality oils. Um, I love for cooking. I love MCT oil for cooking and avocado oil for cooking, because in addition to choosing a a clean oil, you also want to use the proper um, heat temperature oil. So for instance, olive oil is wonderful for cold dishes like salads, sauces, things of that nature, but it's not the best for cooking because it's not meant to um, be taken to such a high temperature. And when we take it to these high temperatures, if we're cooking meats or vegetables, um, the actual nutrient value degrades and it can promote toxicity in that vegetable or in that meat. See, and you know, like when you're talking about like all, all of these things, like obviously and clearly tell that you're not, um, you know, like pro plant, plant-based diet or <clears throat> ketogenic or, you know, carnivore, like, like what it, when you say diet, like when you talk about diet with people, like, what do you term that to be? Like for me, like I can't stand labels. Cause I think labels are the, the things that ultimately always make us have to choose like a side. And then we stand this position and we argue this position, but like, like when you talk about diet with people, what are you saying to them? If they're just like, well, what should I follow? I think there's two really important two to three really important core principles. One, you want to focus on keeping your blood sugar stable. I wore um, a Dexcom and some CGMs for quite some time to really understand because many times you won't even think about something spiking your blood sugar. So it's important to keep your blood sugar stable and also an anti-inflammatory diet. As we now know, inflammation is the root cause of nearly every disease. So we really need to manage inflammation and inflammatory foods are the seed oils that we talked about, highly processed foods, processed foods in general, um, high sugar foods. So I always recommend that people significantly reduce their sugar intake by watching the labels because, you know, you could be eating ketchup and there's added sugar. Um, So many beverages, so many sauces, so important to pay attention to that. So uh, low um, inflammatory, anti-inflammatory diet, 
and um, low glycemic diet is important. And then of course, just laying out and hitting the marks on all those brain healthy foods that I talked about. Yeah. See, and like, I, I feel like one of the things that's never discussed because obviously meat gets really vilified, you know, when people talk about it, you know, unless if you're more in the carnivore way of thinking, but um, the one thing that I understand is like why nobody tests or talks about, you know, like, like vegans, vegetarians, you know, plant-based diets and all that kind of stuff, like the amount of potential glyphosate and chemicals that people are consuming, like, how is that any better? And when do you get to the point of diminishing returns? It's like, well, you're on this plant-based diet now, but unless if you really know where all of your food, fruits and vegetables are coming from, or your plant-based materials that you're consuming, like arguably like your toxicity levels have to be astronomically high but it's never a conversation that I ever hear anybody talk about. And especially in all these documentaries that are made, it's something that's never really talked about the potential risk of how high the chemical concentration is in your body and how that might be so counterproductive to like your plant-based diet that you're on. Like, what is your thoughts and opinions on that? Because I find it really a really interesting topic to dive into because it's not really discussed. That's a great point. And in addition to the pesticide laden fruits and vegetables. So yes, if you're vegan or vegetarian, um, you know, it's also very important. I'm just going to say this. If you're vegan or vegetarian, it's super important to have your blood um, and your biomarkers checked very often because there are, you know, specific things that we can't get from plants. I'm not saying that you can't explore that route if it, if it makes sense for you, but if you're eating plants all day and they're covered in glyphosate and different pesticides and carcinogens, then you're not really going to be better off necessarily. In addition to that, there are so many um, packaged foods that I don't approve of at all. I mean, these beyond beef burgers and these, these meat imitation products that are filled with just terrible ingredients. So if you are going to go that route, it's so incredibly important to choose organic, um, you know, all these very like low pesticide fruits and vegetables, you just have to do this because otherwise you're going to have very high toxic load and completely ditch these meat-based products, these chicken nuggets that are filled with different chemicals. Same thing with the Beyond Beef Burger, all these plant, these meat imitation products, I would stay very far away from them, to be honest. And unfortunately, because, you know, of an Oreo is vegan, you know, we can say, and many things are French fries can be vegan, but that doesn't mean that you should eat them just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's healthy just because it's vegetarian doesn't mean it's healthy. See, and this is the the part that I find to be the most ironic about this plant based movement or a vegan movement is that you create these things, not only that you call them meat, which the, the paradox there is just mind boggling. But then you specifically engineer these products that are horrible for you. It's like they miss the whole, like, if we're going to spend all the time and the money engineering these fake meat products, let's make them healthy. They made them arguably worse than any meat that you're ever going to eat, unless if it's for like, you know, like an ethical personal value. It's not not like these fake meat-based products all of a sudden become super healthy, but people think they do, but they're terrible for you. It's just mind boggling to me. Yeah, they absolutely are. But unfortunately, that's how our food system is built, right? So they want to make as much profit as possible. And because the consumer nowadays, um, you know, really either isn't paying attention or doesn't know what they're putting into their body, you know, you drive these businesses by spending your dollars. And when everyone wants to eat a Beyond Burger for some very unknown reason to me, they drive 
the business. So they're just, you know, riding the wave of people not paying attention or, or maybe not caring one of the two. But when you look at the ingredient list, it's, it's just not, it's not a health food at all. Do you think that like our ancestors, but and I'm going to kind of generalize this to maybe about a hundred years ago, maybe 150 years ago. And then as far back as what you can think, do you think that we as a species had it easier in a lot of regards to be able to live because we didn't need to think about marketing, big food, big pharma, chemicals, um, you know, like all these things, because there's a certain aspect of like, we were free of having anything, but we weren't having to think about how to biohack the body, how to reduce, you know, a lot of the inflammation caused in our everyday diets, how to reduce, you know, screen time and, you know, like traffic congestion, sitting in office buildings, do you think there's an aspect that we do, do we romanticize, you know, what it was like for ancestors? Because there's a lot of it that was just easier, although it might've been physically harder, a little bit harsher conditions, but there's a big part of life that arguably was way easier for our ancestors. I don't disagree with that at all. Um, it, it, you know, you didn't have to become like an encyclopedia essentially back then you could just trust that the food that you got from the ground and from the earth was going to benefit your health. And you didn't have so many external pressures outside of, of course, you know, a lion could eat you or a bear and you had to be prepared for things like that. So, I mean, there's certainly, um, major medical advancements in terms of our lifespan that we should really appreciate and, and be happy about, but definitely their overall stress, I would say, and their lifestyle was just healthier. They went outside every day, got vitamin D. We've gotten so far away from that. And that's why I like to encourage people to re-adopt some of these habits, even if it feels, um, you know, maybe like you feel like it's a waste of time to go outside and get vitamin D, but it's certainly not. And the science backs that. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you do? Like, like people always ask all, obviously, people always ask people like you and I like what do you do like what can I follow and you know typically latch on to that but it's like I always find like the curiosity even like for me like what people are doing like what are your non-negotiables you know like every day or a part of like your routines that you just have to do to promote your personal health and wellness yeah I have a lot of different things I do every week so um non-negotiables my diet is paramount because you are you again are what you eat. So I keep a very clean diet. Um, I do allow myself to, you know, if I want to have a little bit more of a healthy food that day, I do that. But for me, it never feels like restriction because I always know that I'm nourishing my body. So definitely, um, keeping my diet in check exercise is so incredibly important. It's specifically strength training. I strike train five to six days a week. And I also go on a walk every day. So I like to start my day with the walk because you get the vitamin D in your eyes, on your skin to set your circadian rhythm. Other non-negotiables for me are getting to bed at a a proper hour. Of course, there's a couple times a year that that doesn't happen, but I really, really prioritize my sleep. If I go to bed too late, you know, I'll move around meetings in the morning so that I can get extra hours or take a nap during the day. Other things that I really like to do every day, I love to do red light therapy, um, usually like four times a week. It's great for mitochondrial repair, mitochondrial function. And I also intermittent fast um, essentially every day. I eat two meals a day. That's all I eat. So that gives my body 
time to, um, you know, go into more of an autophagy state versus mTOR. And I also do once a week, I do about a 24 to 36 hour fast. Um, that's my personal preference, but I like to allow my body to have more time to, to heal and get rid of cellular waste. I also, um, you know, two to three times a week, I do an ozone sauna. It's called a hocket. Have you ever tried that? No, I haven't. No. Yeah. It's really cool. So there's four different therapies in one there's PEMF that come through the feet. There's light therapy. There's the sauna component because it gets to about like 107 to 111 degrees, depending on how high you want to go. And then it's direct ozone into the actual cells and into your body. So ozone, you know, it's been around for about 150 years being studied, but it's certainly not mainstream medicine, but it can be very helpful in anti-aging, reducing inflammation. It can increase the blood flow to your brain by about 40%. And it also is great for killing viruses, killing bacteria, all these different things that we're kind of exposed to. And it's great for detoxing. You know, um, some people might try to use a juice cleanse or something for a detox. That's, that's really not a detox. It's like a sugar intake, but this is, you know, more of a therapeutic detox. So ozone therapy. I also do hyperbaric oxygen therapy around once a week incredible for your brain. It's pure oxygen also combined with, um, pressure. So it really drives pure oxygen right into your body. And this is an incredible therapy for the brain. Actually, many times, um, if, if a patient comes in with a traumatic brain injury or concussion, that one of the first prescriptions at the Amen clinics that they would give them is to do 40 sessions of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, incredibly healing for the brain, but even, you know, such as in my case, I don't necessarily, I didn't have a TBI or a concussion, but I want to just improve brain performance. So I love doing um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, you know, at least once a week. So a whole list, I also do Nanavi, which is great for um, misfolded cells to really like clear those out because we know that as we age, a big part of the aging process is not only that our hormones decline, NAD levels decline, all of these levels are declining, but also cells, you know, they have a much higher chance of becoming senescent or as we say, zombie cells. So cells that aren't working the way that they were supposed to, but they're still in your body. So things like fasting, um, heat therapy, cold therapy, they can all definitely help to clear out those senescent cells. Another thing I do every day, um, cause this is a simple one, I think is at the end of my shower, I turned it to the coldest setting for between, you know, one to three minutes. So depending on how much time I have that day, but I always end on a cold shower because it's great for energy levels. It's great for, um, repairing the blood brain barrier, which, you know, we know a lot about leaky gut but there's also leaky brain. So alcohol, lack of sleep, stress, highly processed foods, it can actually damage the the barrier that protects your brain from toxins and bacterias. And it can allow bacterias and things that aren't supposed to go to the brain into the brain. So keeping a strong uh, blood brain barrier is really important through proper sleep and cold therapy is a really great way to do that as well. So, so many things, um, certainly I would not, you know, expect someone to do all of those things, but they are things that I really enjoy. And for me, um, prioritizing my health is what I actually enjoy the most. So, and I think like a key thing there probably to bring up and I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I would assume them to be true is that you didn't just wake up one day and do them all. And, you know, typically when we start, we'll add things along the way. So like when, when people say like, like, you know, like you do all these things all the time, I'm like, yeah, but I've been taking 38 years to be able to do it. 
you know, like, obviously, like, you know, if I could expedite that process, knowing what I know now, then I probably would have started some of these things sooner. But the a lot of these things, like, weren't even really talked about some of the things weren't available some of these things, you know, through technological advances, they find easier ways to be able to incorporate them into our lives, you know, and I say the same thing. It's like, if we wanted a TV, like it's in your background right now, you know, 15 years ago, like that TV would have been so expensive. You would have had to been ultra rich to be able to buy it. But now we can get like a big screen flat panel TV for the wall for a couple hundred bucks, you know? So like, it's, it's things like that, that I feel like now these things, because a lot of people aren't used to doing them. They don't realize how accessible they are and how there's places where it's actually affordable to be able to start incorporating some of these things into our lives too. And once you do one, then you'll, you know, you'll start to research another, then you'll, you'll start to accumulate these things. And then the snowball effect later on in life is so high because we have to think past the now. And that's what I say to people. I'm like, no, I don't sit in the cold tank every day for the now I do it for the later on. Like there's some benefits I'm going to feel right now, but I'm like, I'm, I want to hedge my bet that I'm one of those nine year old people killing it still. Like, I don't want to be, you know, like 68, 72 and, you know, just on a rapid sharp decline. Like I want to, you know, be the 105 year old that jumps out of an airplane or, you know, like the 85 year old that's still hiking and climbing mountains. Like, like that's, that's why I do these things all the time. And I think that's a hard bridge for people to gap to is understanding that this isn't just for today, but we're really going to reap the benefits of this in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years from now. And that has to be our shift of focus and getting out of this like right now, immediate benefit mentality. Absolutely. You know, health is an investment. It really is an investment in your future self. And in no way do you need to do all of these things to be healthy, you know? You can, there's so many things that you can do for free outside of changing your food, which of course costs, you know, money, but walking outside is free. You can work out outside for free. You can meditate, you can ground, you could, there's so many things that are still really accessible because that is, you know, one thing where I find myself, I can lay out, you know, 20 different biohacking pieces of equipment that would be amazing for you to potentially use, but you might not, that might not be in your budget. So just start with the things that are, you know, getting, maybe investing in a water filter one year and a shower filter the next, the next six months, however fast you can do it. But no, I always say, if you have the money to go out to dinner, if you have the money to go out drinking with friends, you know, a couple times a month, if you have the time to uh, search social media or you have the time to watch, you know, Netflix for hours and hours and then, then you have the resources to really put your money into health and you have the time to research things on your own or listen to podcasts like this one, where you can just take, you know, my 10 years of, of research and education and get it in, in an hour or so. Mm-hmm. So just prioritizing those things, but I never want anyone to feel as if they can't, you know, achieve optimal health without being able to buy all of these like fancy gadgets. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like we were talking about too, you know, I'm just trying to like always spin this back to things that you've said, because there's so many things I want to try to cover in this podcast. But when it comes back down to like physical activity, because, you know, like that's always like a big question that's burning on everybody is like, you know, like how much physical activity, how many times do I need to work out in a week? How many, what's the time investment per day? And, you know, like I really say to people the and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm like, I, I encourage people, I'm like, do as much as you can, because I'm like, no matter how much you do right now, we are so sedentary that the chances of you like burning out or becoming fatigued or like hurting yourself or all these things, 
are actually slim to none because it to me is more situational on people's diets than the amount of exercise they're going to do. So I'm like, you could, you could work out whatever that looks like, walk, weights, row, ride a bike, anything that you want to do for like a couple hours a day, seven days a week. And you're still not going to be that overtaxed. So what your potential is as a human being physically. And then now that I just finished reading a couple of these studies that, you know, this group of scientists came out saying, well, you know, if you have an eight hour day desk job, if you go for a job for 30 to 40 minutes, it's going to counter that. And I'm like, it's unbelievable that people can like actually state those things. It's like, to me, I'm like, that helps promote what's bad about this world. It's like, we need to move. Like we need to get, like our bodies are like this tool that we can explore, we can use, we can, we can do all these great things with what's your perspective on like physical activity and how much we can do and how lazy we are and what we're capable of. You know, my thinking is quite in line, you know, with your own, of course, there, there are some pieces of science saying that at a bare minimum, it needs to be around like 130 minutes of aerobic exercise a week or so. Um, but for me, do as much as you can. I agree with that. I mean, as we age, you know, it's more difficult to put on muscle. It's more difficult to maintain the muscle mass that we have. So if we have an advantage going into that before things like sarcopenia start to set in, which is muscle loss, then we're going to be significantly better off. So for me, I recommend a walk every single day. I really think that you should get between, you know, anywhere from 7,000 to 15,000 steps a day. Ben Greenfield gets, I think, 15,000. Sergey Young in his new book just talked about, you know, 7,000 being the bare minimum, but we're sitting way too much. So if you can do, you know, at least five days a week or four days a week of strength training, because I think strength training is so important. And I think a lot of women are really concerned that they're going to get bulky from strength training, but it's certainly not going to happen. You know, men's testosterone levels are roughly eight to 10 times our testosterone levels as women. So we're just not really built like that unless we're, you know, taking something outside of our natural physiology to then achieve this incredible muscle mass. But I strength train push myself to the limits five, six days a week. And I, I certainly don't feel as if I'm bulky, but, um, and I sometimes share pictures, you know, of like my fitness journey, but do as much as you can get out for a walk every single day, 10 to 30 minutes in the morning, get light into your eyes, move throughout the day. So at minimum get 7,000 steps, try to get 15,000 if you can. So if you're on calls, I'm on many calls, sometimes podcasts, I take outside while walking, um, just go outside and take a walk, have your call on your walk instead of sitting at your desk and then really incorporate strength training as often as you can. And I think it's also important to focus on mobility work. So maybe do a yoga class every couple of weeks or once a week. Um, but prioritize stretching because the last thing that you want to do, if you, if you are in a position that you're actually working out that hard, which most people are not, you want to make sure that you're also doing the, the rehab and the recovery pieces of this. So mobility work. I mean, I have a Theragun that I keep the muscles nice and loose, but prioritize if you are really, really um, dedicated to your strength training, prioritize your recovery as well. But I think most people have quite a while to get there. Yeah. What's your, what's your thoughts of it? Let's, let's dive into some of these things now. Like we, we initially, before we started recording, we were talking about um, cold baths. So uh, fill me in, like, like, what's your perspective? Like, what do you know? What's your narrative? Because I've talked to quite a few people from around the world, from like, you know, weekend warriors to like, you know, PhD scientists on this topic. 
Like, what, what do you know about the effects on the brain, the effects on health? Um, why do you cold shower? Do you do any other forms of cryotherapy or ice baths? Um, lay it all on the line. Definitely. I think cold therapy is a very powerful tool. It's incredible for your brain because over time, even though um, cold therapy in the moment is a vasoconstrictor, you know, when, when you kind of get out of the cold therapy and the blood releases over time, it actually promotes better blood flow. So blood flow is really everything when it comes to the brain. We want to do as many blood flow promoting things as we can and minimize blood flow restricting. So that's one piece of cold therapy. In addition, it also boosts BDNFN, BDNF, which is brain derived neurotropic factor, which can help with neurogenesis. That's another great reason to do it for the brain, but also your mood in general. So it can help boost serotonin and dopamine. Me. So for me, I don't know about you, but as soon as I get out of cold therapy, my energy skyrockets. If I ever, you know, for instance, I'm hitting a slump in the afternoon or early evening, I go take a cold shower and I feel great. Um, your, your blood is really pumping after that and your mental acuity and clarity is really strong. So there's definitely science to back up cryotherapy, cold therapy. I do cryotherapy, full body cryotherapy with an electric cryo machine. I definitely prefer that over the nitrogen machines because you shouldn't really be breathing in nitrogen. And plus when your head is out of the chamber, your core temperature can't get as cold as, as you would like it to. Another great benefit of cold therapy. And one of the biggest ones I think is the reduction of inflammation. So because you're taking your body and your core temperature to such a low degree, the levels of inflammation in your body can be significantly reduced. And if you have inflammation in the body, you have inflammation in the brain. So things that can present if you have brain inflammation are ADHD, um, ADD, you know, cognitive different uh, brain fog, busy brain. And the difference between brain fog and busy brain is busy brain is when you just can't nail down your idea. This happens to many people. You know, you're thinking a million different things. You can't stay focused. You can't stay on track. And then brain fog, of course, would be just, you really can't get the brain started. You know, it's really feels lagging. So cryotherapy or cold thermogenesis in general are great options to help with all this. And I think it's one of the easiest ways to implement it into your daily life, because whereas a cold tub, and I've done those many a time, um, a, a full immersion in a cold tub or cryotherapy are great. You can also do it at home and just turn your shower to cold or fill your bathtub with cold water and put in ice. Yeah, see, and like, these are the things too, when it comes to like, you know, anything along the lines of like environmental hermesis, where it's like, where I find that people before had it way easier than what we have now, because like, that's how these systems were created in our body is simply because we were outside, like, you didn't have to think about like, heat exposure, cold exposure, because you just were. You know, like when it was yeah. hot outside and you're outside, you're having to work here. It's hot outside. Plus you're working and your core temperature is high and your body's moving or, you know, you're outside and it's winter time and you're trying to stay warm, but it's freezing cold and your core temperature is dropping. And this is something we used to do every day. And, you know, like one thing I try to explain to people, I'm like, we've developed these systems over hundreds of thousands of years. And mm-hmm. that's why they're so beneficial to our body. But, you know, you get in your car and it's like 68 degrees and your house is 68 degrees and your office yeah. is 68 degrees. And like, you know, if we're a little bit cool, we want to put on a hoodie. Like we just don't, we don't value like these different environmental conditions, but we have such great benefit from the things that happened at the cellular level. And, you know, like, you like what I say in, you know, let's dive into this, like a little bit when it comes to 
the cold exposure, if you do you feel like that we get a little bit of an energy bump because of the conversion of white uh, fat cells into brown fat cells, you know, and obviously now we have a little bit of a mitochondria we're working with in the brown fat cells and, you know, we're able to produce more energy. That's why it kind of has like that fat burning effect, um, you know, why people lean out a little bit. Do you think that's why we get a little bit more like actual energy is because we have more cells producing energy in our body? I think that can, can be a contributing factor, definitely. Um, but I also think it's just because you have that vasoconstriction. And then when you get out and warm up, everyone, you know, you feel kind of red, all of a sudden you get a lot warmer. So then your blood flow is released throughout your body. And I think that promotes also because you're getting more oxygen, you're getting more nutrients to the brain, everything that blood carries, which are all these things that the brain needs, that's how it gets there is through the blood flow in our brain. So when that is improved, then you have more energy. So I think it's definitely a combination of the two for sure. See, and I've also thought too, just like diving into like these things when it's like, do you think that, you know, going in, in cold exposure, like really dropping your core temperature, pulling that blood out of your extremities, pulling it in your abdominal cavity, protecting your organs. Do you think that's a really great way to be able to reoxygenate the blood? Because then obviously as you start to warm up, you get the blood flowing back out to the extremities you know, a way to be able to flush the lactic acid out of the muscles after exercise. Like, what do you think about like that, that exchange of blood? Like when you really drop the core temperature and you're pulling it out of your extremities, cause I even look at it from like a venous pooling in the legs too. It's like one of the great ways to be able to get some of that blood out of the legs. And then in return, when you start to warm up and then you, you know, kind of repopulate um, the legs with nice, fresh blood. Um, where are you at with like the, the blood exchange, you know, and reoxygenated blood coming back into the body, you know, from cold exposure? Yeah, I think that that's definitely one of the major benefits. Same thing with the brain, you know, just flooding the body with this, with this, um, not new blood, but, you know, reflooding the body with blood, um, is really, really a strong case for cold therapy. And in general, you know, this hormesis that you talk about, which is putting your body into stressful conditions for the benefit that it comes out stronger. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I love all of these different hermetic. So sauna, cold therapy, exercise. These are all these hormetic stressors that we come back stronger from. So I'm a huge fan of cold thermogenesis. And, and like I said, it's something people can incorporate every day. I will say though, um, you know, in the, the chance that you have extremely high stress levels already, you want to be careful with how many biohacks we say you include, because if you have an extremely stressful personal life, you have an extremely stressful career, and then you're, you're working out, you know, like crushing it every day. And then you do the cold therapy and then you do the sauna. It, it can be a little bit too much sometimes for the body. So you want to make sure that you're keeping your stress levels in check through something like meditation. That's it. You know, I just wrote an article for a publication, um, a, a month or so ago, or a couple of weeks ago, and talking about how meditation changes the structures in the brain. So it can reduce the amygdala, which is the fear center. And then it also uh, actually strengthens the cortical hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, all these areas that are really important decision-making. So if you're going to be um, implementing these extreme biohacks for the most, most person, people, it's, it's completely fine, but just be aware of your stress levels. Because again, if you are compounding stressor over stressor, over stressor, over stressor, you know, you have to be aware of that and listen to your body as well um, and do it when it makes sense. 
or, you know, balance it out with meditation because it's a very powerful tool for the brain. Yeah. One of the things that I I've been doing kind of way more often on, you know, and probably if you had to average out, maybe like once every two months, I actually try to meditate underwater in the pool to be able to train the amygdala because it's like something I have such a fear of go like, of like what happens when, and I know we all do because it's like get to the surface, you know, breathe. But I find that there's a stillness and a calmness underneath the water that you can't really get anywhere else. Like it just, it really brings me to like with inside myself and, you know, really trying to like retrain my brain and be like, you know, we can be comfortable here. Like if we just find peace, if we allow ourselves to be able to be peaceful, there is peace in these environments. And when I, when I do these things, you know, like when it's sitting in the cold tank or like the extreme heat and the sauna, you know, underneath the water, it's like, like, that's really what I'm going through in my mind all the time. It's just saying like, there's peace here. Like we don't have to fear it. Like we don't have, it doesn't have to be anxiety ridden. You know, we don't have to run away from it. You know, we don't have to do all these things, but we're taught that like we're taught that, you know, underwater is not a safe place. Shouldn't be there, you know, like, and, and we develop that fear around it. Like the cold, we should never be in there. Like the cold, why would you want to be cold? Being cold is terrible. You know, like these are just things that we hear all the time. So we develop like these mentalities around it, but really spending that time to be, to changing the way that you think, but what happens in our brain when we do that? Like, where do you say like from the meditation standpoint and saying like, I'm going to rewire my brain. I'm going to rewire the way that I think about these. Are we able to reduce the amount of stress that happens in our body when we choose to think of them differently, even though that they are high stress environments? Absolutely. That's a very, very good point. So humans are one of the only species that I, that really can evoke, um, a physical response to an event that has either happened in the past or an event that may happen in the future. So maybe, you know, five years ago, something really traumatic had happened to you. If you put your brain and your mind into thinking about that event, it can release the same cascade of chemical reactions in your body as if it just happened. So how you think about things and how you respond to things um, is so important to how it affects your health. In many times, you know, the same thing with different, different diseases, maybe like if you can put your thoughts, you know, Dr. Eamon and Joe Dispenza say your brain is always, your brain and body are always listening. So if you have negative thoughts, it can literally evoke, you know, different sicknesses or illnesses in your body. So how we think about things, how we talk to ourselves, positive affirmations and reframing fear is really, really important because the amazing thing is because of neuroplasticity, which neuroplasticity is the, our brain's ability to rewire and strengthen neuronal, um, neuronal connections throughout our lifetime, we're able to change the way that we think it can be really uncomfortable and it can be difficult, but you know, if you can re context fear in your brain, then yes, it will have a different physiological response in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I get it when we're, I guess we're talking about, um, you know, like the effects of like cold exposure, you know, and kind of going about this in like different ways is bringing it back to like norepinephrine. Like, obviously we know that cold exposure increases the norepinephrine, um, levels like in the body. And do you feel so because like there's not as many avenues to be able to release um, that norepinephrine in the body that we connect with cold exposure so much more because of that because it's not 
it's the feeling is slightly different than you say for getting a dopamine rush because we're used to getting a little bit more of a dopamine rush from the things that we've done in the past. Because I find that people get really addicted to like cold therapy once you get into it. And, but nobody really can tell you why. And I think that there's like a chemical process that happens in the body that we don't fully understand that might be slightly different than a lot of these other stressors we're going through that we connect with it because it's completely different than the sauna. It's completely different than exercise. It's completely different than breath work, meditation, all that kind of stuff. But the one thing like I do know, and you're starting to see that growing trend is like people are just like hook, line and sinker after they start to do it. Yeah. Well, what therapy do you know of outside of cold therapy that gives you those, that rush of endorphins in the same way? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's rare. It's almost like I don't know, doing skydiving or something, right? Like you have this incredible rush of endorphins, norepinephrine as soon as you're done. So it can definitely be something that people get really addicted to um, because of the overwhelmingly positive feeling. And also I think, you know, with a sauna, it's kind of more of like a slow climb in terms of having a success, but cold therapy is so short. So if anyone wants to, they can really get through it. And then you feel so accomplished on the other side. You're like, wow, I just did that. That's a big deal. You know? So it's a mix between the actual physical um, benefits and the physical rush that you feel and the mindset of you just really accomplish something super difficult. And once you continue to do that, it can start to reframe behaviors as being not so scary and being really rewarding which is important for, as we say, rewiring the brain. Yeah. And like, we kind of know, because this is also new that there's not really like a general preferred temperature. There's not like a preferred length. Like we were generalizing these things now, a little bit more research is starting to come into play, but we're so far from being able to say like something like the sauna, you know, 168, 170 degrees, you know, for 20 minutes ish, you know, like we, we have these kind of set times and temperatures when it comes to heat and, you know, like there's a lot more research around it, but when it comes to cold, we just don't know. So what do you suggest to people, you know, for like temperature wise, if you're going in a cold bath and duration? So with the shower, of course, everyone's shower kind of ranges. I just turn it as cold as possible in the cold bath. You'll have to tell me how low you go. I believe that it's usually set around 39. How, how cold do you do yours? Oh, I'm just trying to think of what the conversion is because obviously we're Celsius up here. So that's the only way that like oh, I can yeah. refer to it and stuff. But um, so I actually find several different factors here. So like when it's, when the temperature is about, I would say minus one to about minus 1.8 degrees Celsius, um, mm -hmm. that you honestly, you actually get a little bit colder, quicker and longer because your capillaries are open. Like you're accepting that cold like a lot more um like our tank sits at about minus 3.5 minus 4 um but like you know like your computer's closing like you get cold like the cold is deep uh but you can actually sit in it longer because you're not accepting that cold in so it, it's actually more of a battle i find the colder the water gets than if you have kind of like this general you know maybe zero to um, and I say minus 1.8 cause it's actually literally that specific. So once you get to minus two degrees Celsius, you kind of flip, like that's where it, it turns into being like, well, you just become so numb to it. There's your clothes and you know, you're kind of almost pushing the cold away versus accepting it in. So 
I can do minus 3.5 for kind of like 10 minutes, no problem. Like it's not really like- That's cool. That's like, so in Fahrenheit, I looked it up. It's like 24.8 is negative four degrees Celsius. So yeah, yeah. That, that's super cool. That's colder than I usually do, but I'm sure that there could be, you know, equal or even more benefits going colder. Yeah. And, and this is the thing, like, you know, I just know like really at the end of the day between like the Epsom salts, the circulation that we have in the tank, um, that these are kind of, this is what the temperature just kind of sits at. Um, we have a, a custom design tank, like it, it's a double walled stainless steel tank that's insulated in the refrigeration run lines run on the inside. Like it's like nothing else. Like literally there's nothing on the market that you can buy. That's, that's like it. But for like this application, it's perfect. But the one thing that I do know when it comes to the cold is that because the refrigeration lines, if it's a shell that they run about halfway up and down. So when it's on, it'll actually form this layer of ice that rims the inside of the tank, like on the bottom and about halfway up. Now, when that is on and like that layer of ice is there, even if the temperature is minus 3.5, when that ice is there, it feels substantially colder versus if it's minus 3.5 and it's just water. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an interesting fact to me. And then I also know that when the tank is actually on and you're sitting in it and it's cooling it down, that like my feet, like I'll fight the foot battle within the first 30 seconds. And then that's all my focus is, is just trying to calm that storm. And even though the temperature is exactly the same temperature, may or may not be ice on the bottom, may or may just be water, but simply because it's on and it's cooling the walls and your feet are kind of up and you're trying to pull it back, but just like that cold is resonating off the walls of the tank, you know, like that drops you to a whole different level of perceived cold versus Mm -hmm. actual cold. So then it changes the way that you're starting to process this cold environment as well. And then we get into the whole moving water factor where it's like, it could be plus one degree Celsius, but then you turn the agitator jets on and it feels like knives going through your skin. Like we actually don't use it a lot because, you know, basically from the top, there's a bar that comes down and this bar that comes across and we drilled holes in it and it's blasting the water towards you, not at a very high pressurized level, but simply it literally feels like, you know, Poseidon is throwing like daggers of water mm-hmm. at you as you're sitting in this thing like it it's just all these different battles that like you fight and this is why to me it's like I would love to know and I, w- I would love to be a part of a study saying like we have all of these different ways of doing this because even like with cold showers because I do the cold bath all the time I actually don't get any benefit from a cold shower I almost find it to be a little bit more annoying than beneficial because I'm like how do I get cold all over? Like, I just don't want to yeah. be cold right here or on my back or like, like I want to be submersed in the cold, not mm-hmm. have like this concentrated jet of cold on me. So it's like, I'm kind of cold here, but the rest of my body is kind of warm. But you know, like I feel it is like a really bipolar environment when it's like the contrast <laughs> between like warm and cold. I understand the benefit. I know that if people don't have access to it, that, you know, like that's just a great tool. If that's all you got. But again, like these are kind of some of the things for me, I think also the one thing that a lot of people don't talk about too, is the benefit of sleep quality. Now, the one thing that I've noticed, and I've been keeping track of the people around me um, that have cold exposure therapy in their lives is that 
it's about eight hours. So like, no matter how long you go for, whether it be a minute or five minutes or 10 minutes, if you're fully submerged and you really drop that core temperature down, if you time it right about eight hours later, like the, the tiredness comes on. And if you do it right, you can hit that kind of time you're going to bed and your sleep quality is way higher because people who will do it in the morning. And I know this from myself that, you know, around like one or two o'clock in the morning, it's like the ultimate blood sugar crash, you know, like it just like the grogginess that you just, and you have to take a nap for five or 10 minutes to kind of like rejuvenate, re-energize because you're now burning so much energy throughout the day. Like, you know, and there's no way to be even calculate how many calories that you're burning and the taxation on your body from like, like, you know, a thermogenic reheating effect of, of your body, but just gauging how tired that people feel. And then that overwhelming sense of having a nap or wanting to be able to go to bed. Um, I know it's a lot. I've just said a lot, but like, this is like when it cold therapy to me is one of the things, because I do it so regularly, I have this abundant amount of questions and there's not a lot of like actual evidence. So a lot of it's just kind of anecdotal at this point. So what's your perspective on some of those things I just rambled on about? Well, absolutely. So dropping your core temperature it is so helpful for many things. Actually, if you're, if you know, when we sleep, it's important to um, drop the temperature of our, our apartment or homes, because that's when we get the best and deepest levels of sleep in a general sense about sleep. You know, that's when, when we're sleeping, um, something called our glymphatic system is activated, which cleans out cellular waste in the brain and lack of sleep has been closely tied to developing dementia and Alzheimer's later, because if you're not getting quality sleep, then these plaques called beta amyloid can then build up. So super important for, for, uh, sleep and to really activate the glymphatic system. Do you track your sleep on any sort of wearable? Um, I did. And that's like a Pandora's box with me. And it's, and it frustrates people that have tracked sleep or that know about the importance of sleep, um, to no end. And if you want to get into it, I'm more than happy to walk through it with you because I actually spent a whole year doing a sleep tracking study on myself. Um, and it's what I found really kind of blew my mind. I would love to hear about it. Um, yeah, please tell. Yeah. So basically once these wearables started coming out, like, and, and I'm a huge, like I do my blood pressure every morning, like biological age, metabolic age, you know, my blood sugar levels. Like I I'm like you or like, I'm, I'm heavily invested into it because of just a sheer interest. Like I just, I love to know, I want to know. Um, so when the wearables came out for, um, sleeping, the, or doing the sleep tracking, I never cared about keeping track of my step count or calorie count. I know I'm active. I don't need a watch to tell me that. Um, so I bought it specifically for the sleep, but I realized that if I was getting, you know, about eight hours of sleep or trying to get that eight hours of sleep, uh, for one, I'd have, you know, high twenties, low thirties of these like restless episodes, like during the night, like my sleep quality was very poor. Um, hmm. it took me longer to fall asleep. I never really felt refreshed in the morning. I always felt a little bit groggy, a little bit tired. So I'm like, what can I do with this? I'm like, I can't sleep longer because my body just won't let me. Like I just, that I can't force my body to sleep nine or 10 hours to do stay that way. So I'm like, what happens if I reduce these hours? So I started pulling the hours back. I just started dropping an hour at a time and really kind of understanding over about a month time period, like how does this affect my body? So I got it all the way down. And I noticed that the more hours that I peeled away from uh, my amount of hours sleeping, 
is that I started falling asleep faster. I started feeling more refreshed in the morning. Um, and I started having less restless episodes. So it kind of came all the way down. I pulled it all the way down to four hours, realized that that was kind of now getting like counterproductive. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started really kind of fine tuning this five hours of sleep. So like even today, like this is like what I do now is because say if it's like 10 o'clock at night, for example, and I'm like, okay, it's time to go to bed. I will walk upstairs. I'll crawl my bed in within probably 10 seconds, literally every single night, I'm completely out. Like it's just, I, once I make the decision to go to bed, I'm completely out. If you track it on the sleep quality, I am like, just like, I am a zombie. Like I don't move. My heart rate's down about another, you know, five to eight beats per minute lower. Like I said, like, I don't move. I'm not restless. I'm not waking up. There's like, my sleep quality is very high. Um, my Delta wave activity like has increased, um, like substantially and like, it's just, it's mind boggling to me. Even like when I get up, like, like even the refreshment that I feel like it, like I'm like, I've always been ready to go like in the morning, you know, like I've always been a morning person. I grew up on a farm. There's always been a necessity to be able to get up in the morning. I always do a lot in the morning. So like having to me, a part of my morning routine is having a necessity to be able to get up. Um, cause then I feel like it changes the way that I perceive my morning changes, the way that my brain functions, my body functions and the way I start to produce energy. Um, but I've found through all the tracking that I've done, like even my blood pressure is lower. Um, like my blood sugar level levels are more stabilized lower in the morning. Um, my biological and metabolic age are lower in the morning. All these values actually start to increase um, with the more sleep that I get. Like it, it actually is counterproductive to my overall health to be able to get closer to eight hours of sleep which is completely contradictory, I know, to like all the science that's out there. But then I come back to like these generalized theories about how it's like, well, if you are, you know, 40 to 60 pounds overweight, or you're a male or a female, you're 70 years old, or you're 22 years old, if you're dieting on fast food versus you're a carnivore versus you're a vegan, like there's so many of these externalities that actually come into play in our lives. How can we generalize it that everybody needs eight hours of sleep and how many people are actually tracking like their restless episodes? Because if you're getting like, like 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 restless episodes, night, your actual sleep quality during that time is very poor because if you track that the amount of restless episodes per hour that you're having every night, there's not a lot of good deep quality sleep that's happening, you know, like arguably like your REM sleep is extremely short, you know, like in all mm -hmm. these like benefits that we know. So that's, that's always my challenge to like the amount of hours that we need for sleep quality, because I happen to know I went down a rabbit hole. And typically when I started doing these things, like I was even putting my blood under the microscope to see like the activity of like my red blood cells. Like, like I went far with it. So like, I'm I kind of have like, and I'm, I don't doubt that I'm an anomaly, you know, but it's also, I, I listen to people. It's like, you know, I can't fall asleep right away. You know, I toss and turn for 20, 30 minutes, you know, even if people are, you know, like limit alcohol consumption, limit caffeine, 
you know, like limit, you know, eating too close to bed, like doing all these kind of like pre-bed preparation, limiting screen times, they're still having a really tough time falling asleep. You know, I wake up multiple times during the night or, you know, I get up at night to go pee, you know, or, you know, I wake up and I feel groggy in the morning, but like, no, everybody's still trying to abide by this, like eight hours of sleep, but don't really investigate themselves enough. And like I said, I know it's kind of counters the science and the actual narrative that's going on there, but I can't argue the results that I've got either, even with doing all the tracking that I've done, I'm not just wildly throwing out there and say, well, I only know this because I feel that way. Like I, I've tracked it significantly and this has been what the result is. So um, decompact that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely there it's, we're so bio individual. So it seems mm-hmm. like you've done typically if someone were to tell me that they were sleeping five hours a night, I would say that's, that's not great. We should really work to improve that. But I also always say the quality is more important than the quantity. And then there's certainly laws of diminishing returns here, you know, whereas if you're sleeping eight, nine hours, but you're tossing and turning all night, you're waking up a million times. That's why the wearable tech, in my opinion, is really helpful because you see the quality of what's going on at night because most people, they don't remember most of the times when you wake up and we have really like this architecture of sleep where as you know in the initial stages it's light dipping down into REM and each sleep cycle is about 90 minutes so I think it's more important to focus on the quality of the sleep how you feel when you wake up and you've done all the quantitative measures to actually know that this is okay for you for the average individual most likely they need a little bit more or sleep, but again, really prioritizing the quality of sleep over the quantity and then making sure that you're optimizing the hours, but you're completely right. Cause I've done similar tests. Actually, I've reduced the amount of hours that I sleep. I typically on average, I sleep about seven and a half hours, but everyone is different. Just like sleep chronotypes, you know, there's lion, bear, dolphin, wolf, and people can look into that more, but everyone is built differently. So some people, you know, such as a bear, they need a full eight hours, but some people are like a dolphin and want to wake up really early. Um, So everything wolves, you know, staying up really late. So everyone has a different set of, or different biological clock that you need to really figure out what's best for you and how much sleep that you need, but definitely prioritizing deep and REM sleep are super important. So as long as you're getting that, then, and if this works for you, then everything is really custom and, and you can, um, you know, quantify and make sure that you're feeling good. But if you're feeling great, then definitely, I think that's acceptable. What, yeah. what is your HRV? If you don't mind me asking, um, like heart rate value, heart rate variability. Yeah. Variability. Um, so like if I get, um, like, are we talking like heart rate variability, like in the, in the mornings, maybe just kind of define that, break that down a little bit more for me. Sure. So on aura ring heart rate variability yeah. is essentially the time in between the beats of your heart. So if your heart is beating really fast, you're going to have a lower HRV score. If you yeah. have more time in between each heartbeat, it's going to be higher. But if you ever used aura and I think whoop has the same thing, it'll give you like an aggregate score for the day of HRV. Yeah, I don't know if I have it because I was just trying to think of like, I was what I was just trying to think of like his heart rate um, variability being like, you know, my resting pulse rate in the morning versus like typical resting pulse rate, like during the day. Like that's like how I would track like my variability is like where I am like first thing in the morning versus where I'm at kind of during sedentary activity, like during the day. But um, I use the, the Sunto 
uh, watch is the one that I have right now. And just looking at, um, yeah, I don't have like that actual score value. So maybe that would be um, a benefit of getting like a whoop strap. I know because of Joe Rogan's podcast that everybody's starting to kind of pick up those, but maybe there's just like a little bit more data that I could be. Um, and, I'm, and I'm just like a research junk. Do anything that kind of like adds to it. I'm more than willing to be able to, to track that too. So now I'm intrigued and interested what that, that value would be for me. Yeah. And it's a great measurement of like overall stress on the body as well. So like how well you're recovering overall stress, um, you know, of course, taking into consideration the time between heartbeats, but I find it to be an interesting metric, but also I find that people are so competitive as per everything, right? So everyone wants to compare their aura ring scores, just like I asked you for yours, but what's more important when we look at HRV is the variability of your own HRV. So, you know, a friend of mine, you know, her score sits around 180 or mine's more around 80 to 90. So of course I could aspire to have 180, but genetically we're just different. So it's more important to pay attention to the variation. So is it 80 one day and then 20 the next day, there's a major problem. So Mm -hmm. it's something that can really put you on the lookout for times that like we talked about before, if you're compounding stressors too often, that could be kind of a red flag to say, Hey, ease up a little bit today on the workout. Maybe do something more like a a long walk. Definitely. I don't recommend completely removing the exercise. Just take a walk instead, you know, maybe going, doing squats, heavy deadlifting, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. See, and I was just kind of like looking at this before too, is like in, in, like that, I feel like this is always the problem with everything in like the health and fitness industry is that like nobody uses like the same, well, not nobody, like there's a lot of different metrics that people use to be able to say the same thing because on my Sunto app, I have this thing called um, my ATL score, which is my fitness and fatigue. So it kind of tracks like, you know, whether or not I'm losing fitness, maintaining fitness, I'm in productive training or going too hard. I have this TSS score, which is used to quantify the training stress of a workout. Um, and then I have this other value, which is the CTL, which basically logs like how um, stressful your, your training or training progression values explains like, um, like the CTL is your fitness, ATL is fatigue and TSB is your form and TSS is the activity, a tra- or your activity training stress score. Um, based on like the intensity and duration. So like there's all these different things that all these different companies use and then we become like focused on those, but it would just be nice if every, like if Sunto and Garmin and, you know, whoop straps and O-rings, if everybody had like the same basic software and then maybe had like a few things on top of that. So we could all track these things because I feel like that's always like a part of this too, is like people are like, what should I wear? What should I have? What should I be tracking? You know, like, and what should I be doing? It's like, because we get obsessive over these values where then I get into this mindset is like, is it healthy for us to be tracking any of these things? Because then we add this pollution to our body because then we're, we're like, how many steps have I got? Okay. I need another thousand steps. Okay. I got to do this. I only have this much time in the day. And it's like, you know, oh, my blood pressure is higher today. Like we start to fixate on these things and how much stress are we creating with inside ourselves? And then the resulting inflammation, because we are now starting to know too much and can analyze too much in the day. Like, how, how do you feel about that? I think that that brings up a, a valuable point. Um, you definitely just same thing with food, you know, you, you can overstress about 
many of these variables. So we have so much data available to us now, but we have to have the the right mindset around the data, I think, you know, so don't allow yourself to get too stressed about it. And if you're finding yourself too stressed, it's important to be self-aware. I think more than anything in this whole journey of biohacking and, and health optimization is be aware. Are you taking it to an extreme that it doesn't need to go, you know? So if you find yourself doing that, then just put it away for a few days. We have to have this self-control and self-monitoring in order to know when too much is too much. But for me, I find that in the beginning, I always really analyze everything a ton. But once time goes on and it becomes a normal habit, I put like a little bit less stock into stressing about it so much, especially if you know that you're living a healthy lifestyle and if you know you're doing what you need to be doing to achieve your health goals. But I think that they can definitely be valuable when used in the right way. Also, you know, if there is, I'm not sure if on yours, there's an airplane mode, but on Aura Ring, there's an airplane mode. So you want to really reduce EMFs as much as possible. So every night I completely detach my Wi-Fi, either from the breaker or from the actual uh, outlet so that there's no EMFs running through the house. I mean, it's bad enough that we're forced to have them throughout the day, but you know, we are also limited unless we're going to completely move off the grid into like a cave or a Citadel or something, but, um, just do as much as you can to reduce those EMFs. So turn your phone on airplane mode at night and definitely unplug your Wi-Fi from the socket. Do you do those things? Um, I actually try to do them like as much as possible. And that's why I actually stopped wearing, um, my watch at night because I didn't like the continued tracking of data. Like I wanted to get my skin a break. I wanted to get my mind a break. I wanted you know, to be able to reduce, you know, like the amount of um, the activity and like Wi-Fi signals, you know, like the, this the electronics, like I don't like, cause I spend a real, uh, an astronomical amount of time in the back country and in the forest and like outside. So I feel like I connect with the detriment of these things more. And I don't like them like at all. Like I just like, I try to really shy away and like, disconnect. And that's why I'm really picky and choosy about like what I do now. Cause I don't like the way it makes my body feel. And I don't know whether I've convinced myself of that in my mind, but the more I become like aware of these things, I'm like, Oh, that's that little feeling in my mind that I had, or like, that's like the restlessness that I felt like in this arm or like, you know, like that, I don't have like this, like, kind of stomach ache anymore you like all these just different like little things you know because like before when I was sleep tracking like at night obviously I'd have, have my watch on and then I'd have my phone beside my bed and then it would be charging and like I would just like all of these different things but like I would wake up and I was I was clear and I felt good but I always had this sense of like I'm doing something counterproductive or like I'm holding myself back somehow or there, there's just something that's not right about this and then when I stopped doing all this sleep tracking and I got rid of all this stuff, stopped wearing my watch, got the phone out of the room and all this. And I'm just like, I woke up in the morning, like a few days after I stopped doing it. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I wonder what, you know, so I was like, you see, like, I, I definitely, you know, like, like the magnetic fields that are around us, the radio waves that are around us, I think it are such an abundance right now. And like, mm -hmm. there's just, there's, like you said, there's no way to escape from them, like in our daily lives, the way that we live right now, especially in big urban centers especially in a place like New York, like I can't even imagine, like I, I know how much I am heavily affected now because I sleep so much in the forest um, that if I, when I'm in big urban centers 
or even smaller urban centers, you know, but like, like Vancouver's not a, a big city. We're only in the Metro Vancouver, only about like two, 3 million people. So, but I know that energy, like I have actual tough time sleeping because there's just, there's so much radiating energy mm -hmm. from people and cars and buildings and lights and sounds and, you know, electromagnetic fields and radio is that like, I feel that I think so much more than people who are kind of conditioned to disregard that. Like, how do, how do you feel about that? Like just being in such a big urban center and just being inundated with all of this energy and radio waves and electromagnetic fields all the time. It's, it's very clear. So for instance, when I um, go out of town into nature, like go to Denver or Aspen or somewhere that is really nature filled, it's completely different of an experience. And I'm actually, you know, considering moving to a more um, environment friendly and more of a health centric city. New York is amazing for relationships and networking and so many great things. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not the healthiest environment. People don't live in like Montana on a ranch, you know, mm -hmm. as I, as I get a little bit older and I know so many of these different variables, it's definitely something And Vancouver is beautiful. Um, by the way, do you go to Dave Asprey's labs over there? Didn't he just open one in Vancouver? I haven't yet. No, but I want to. Did you know today's world biohacking day, by the way? Yeah, I did actually. Yeah. Okay. So good timing for this podcast. Yeah, um, but no, you're completely right. I mean, there's only, I mean, you can have EMF blocking paint on the walls. You can do all these different things. You can have a fair day around your bed, but at the end of the day, like when you live in a big city, you can't escape it. Um, it's emitting from everywhere. Everyone's like excited about 5g. I'm like, this is an absolute nightmare. Immediately turned it off my phone, do as much as I can. But of course, no matter what you do, you're never going to have the same environment as you would in, you know, out in the wilderness or in a forest or just really disconnecting from all that. So I think in, in the near future, that's definitely going to be part of my, uh, you know, future plans is being somewhere more in nature, because you really have to go out of your way living in the city to find nature, to ground, to, you know, you look kind of crazy being in like Central Park with like doing all these grounding meditation things, but, you know, it's actually also quite normal. There's all sorts of crazy things going on. So, um, yeah. You don't feel too out there, but definitely if you could just walk out into your front yard in the morning, it's, it's much more conducive to overall health. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I am going to do probably the worst thing that I want to do right now, but I didn't even realize that it was 8.30 already since we pushed this back. I have a meeting coming up in 15 minutes. Can we please do a part two to this? Because there's so much that I wanted to talk about. I just didn't realize that an hour and a half went by already uh, that fast and stuff, but, um, can we, uh, do you mind if we, we end this right now and, you know, we'll go back and forth on email and maybe schedule in a, a part two in like a week or two from now. And maybe we can make like a little bit of a series out of this. Cause it, it seems like the dialogue between the two of us, like this would be like a six hour podcast, be able to get through a lot of the things that I know that I want to talk about. Never mind the things that you want to talk about too. Absolutely. I would love that. Yeah. The hour and a half flew by. So let's definitely get a part two on, on the books. I had a wonderful time. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. Yeah. Can you let everybody know like social media handles, website, any information that you want people to know before we end this this morning? Yeah. My Instagram is my name, Kayla Barnes, K-A-Y-L-A-B-A-R-N-E-S. And then my company website with all of our coaching material and information is brain-upgraded.com. 
Awesome. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I appreciate you coming on so much. You're just like a wealth of information. And I love talking to people like you are so invested into like personal health and just not only wanting to do that for yourself, but just so willing to be able to share that with others. Absolutely. I feel the same. So we will definitely talk soon and I can't wait for part two. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.